0: Hello? Hello? It's all around us.
1: Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome back. Happy post-election. I'm sure whatever side you voted for, you are tired of all of the bullshit. So, let's move along. This week I'm running a best of episode. I got to talking to somebody on Facebook and it popped up that I should rerun episode number 284 that we recorded back in 2018. We were interviewing Kevin Oliver about the topic of books bound in human skin, how you would go about the process, what it would be like working with human skin as a source material. Uh, Kevin was put in touch with us through Mark Hartzman, who was on here recently for his book on Weird Mars. Kevin was a great guest. This show starts off a little bit boring to some people because he goes and talking about how you actually bind a book and how you fix a book. And then from there we go into the different types of leathers and so forth, and we eventually end up on the topic of, if I wanted to bind a book in human skin or work with human leather, how would that process go? It actually is one of my favorite shows. Kevin was a great guest, and we really enjoyed talking to him. So uh, hopefully, if you guys haven't heard this show before, you will enjoy it, because it kind of fits right in with my theme of not necessarily paranormal, but definitely weird. So let's get this going, and as always, I will see you guys at the other side. I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany, (laughs) All right. So with us tonight, we have Kevin Oliver from Signature Bindery uh, with us to talk about, I don't know if it's going to be a history of, of books of skin or just the topic of books done with human skin. So thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show. Give us a little bit of a background of who you are, what you do, and, and why this topic is of interest to you or how it applies to you, because it's really bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: thank you. Thank uh, you. Well, yeah, uh, I'm I'm Kevin. I'm a hand book binder in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I run a, uh, my shop is called Signature Bindery. And basically what we do is we we specialize in the uh, uh, rebinding and uh, restoration of old and rare books. Older the better for us. And so we really enjoy the challenges of that. And um, But we do all forms of binding you know we do like uh modern binding if we usually if it's a modern thing we're not a machine shop so everything we do is by hand so if we do modern type things it usually has to be a small quantity usually a little more specialized item Uh, i think you had uh, mark hartzman on and and so we did a, a a limited edition of his oliver cromwell book uh, and so, uh, we would never be able to, to handle large volumes of stuff, uh, but we do enjoy, we enjoy the small stuff of the small orders, but what we really enjoy is really the rare, the more rare and old, the better. So, uh, I've been binding. oh gosh, coming up on 25 years now. Uh, I learned, uh, privately under a, a binder in Cornwall, England. Uh, I went in 1994 and into 95 and. Uh, studied with her privately and uh, learned the craft that way. And so then came back and uh, started the bindery and started my own business. And then about two years later, I went back and spent another summer with her to study uh, vellum binding and medieval binding techniques. And uh, I've just been extremely busy ever since. You know, we have a couple of assistants that help out and we have Uh, a very large backlog of work and um you know it's all uh sort of word of mouth work so we work with a lot of collectors and uh book dealers uh, all over the world uh, and to to really sort of fine-tune their libraries it allows people like a lot of these collectors to be able to, to buy fairly valuable books that have been what we call butchered by uh, machine binderies and stuff and then they send them to us and we'll take these you know say a 17th or 16th century book that have been rebound in library buckram bindings and we'll take them and do a what's called a period binding on them. we'll return them back to the way they would have looked originally Whoa. Uh, so we'll Look at the book, where it's from, and uh, sort of when it came uh, into being, and then we take all those factors into consideration and create a binding where the decoration, the lettering, the the leathers, so those things are all appropriate for that. So, so it's not quite necessarily as good as your original binding, but it's probably the next best thing for them.
1: What is what is the oldest book you've worked on?
2: Well, the oldest one we actually just finished. Uh, we had a an eight month project uh, working on a, a book uh, uh, that was printed in 1486, uh, and it's uh, which is a, a period of books. And I'll just kind of again, I'll, some of your listeners will probably know all this stuff. And but the the period of books between 1455 and 1501 has a special name. Those books are called incunabula. Uh, It basically, it's an old word that refers to a a cradle, like a baby's cradle. And so they've used that, uh, they created that, uh, adopted that word as a way of describing books in their infancy. And this is really referring to printed books, 1455 being, of course, a time that uh, Gutenberg uh, first started printing books on his printing press. And so uh, from then for the next 50 years, uh, those books are considered some of the most valuable of uh, the printed books. And we were able to work on one, which was um, uh, and it, it's uh, the German, it was a German version called the Reise in Land, which is um, uh, a gentleman, uh, actually three men uh, from Mainz, Germany, traveled uh, to pilgrimage to the Holy Lands of Jerusalem. And they uh, one was, of course, uh, the author of the book. Another was a woodcut artist and then a f- an and stuff, and in their travels, they they did woodcut illustrations of all the cities they visited, and then went to spent time in Jerusalem, and then worked their way back. and And the uh, it's fairly understood that the book itself was, even though it doesn't say it in the book, but they pretty much understand that the book was probably written by uh, Gutenberg's, uh, pr- or not written by, uh, printed and uh, by Gutenberg's apprentice uh, Peter Scherf. And uh, and probably may have possibly even been printed on Gutenberg's printing press because um, at the time, which was 1486, Gutenberg had lost the press and uh, to financial problems, and also lost uh, his print shop and lost his uh, assistant. So, uh, so it's just an incredible book. It's one of the most valuable of the Incarnabula, just because it's uh, the value of it's, it's like the first travel book ever written. It's uh, you know one of the first books with the first book with full that out. Book play uh, woodcuts. These some of these woodcuts are like five feet long, and so this book came to us. It did not have its original cover, and so we had to go through a, a about an eight month process of removing every page from the book. And we had to wash every page because they were quite dirty. Wash them, uh, repair them, resew it, and then put a new uh, vellum binding on it, which would have been similar to what it would have had originally. So, so it's pretty freaking cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs> How much? Yeah,
2: it's, it's a it's. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: How much is that book worth off the top of your head, do you think?
2: Well, it's it's be hard to say. Uh, One of the other things that we did right next door to me is a letterpress printer. And I worked with him to create – there was a few of the woodcuts were missing, which is not unusual for this book. There might only be maybe two or three copies of this book in the world that are – Actually complete so what happened was that these the woodcut illustrations are so valuable that that people would take them out and sell them individually and uh and so it so uh, and that happened somewhat to this one but the what we took the extra step and we actually went uh we were able to download some of the high-res images of the missing plates and have them reproduced in letterpress, and then my assistant's a watercolor artist and she went through and uh, colored all of the uh, the plates to match the, you know, either because some of the plates in, in the book were, I had a partial plate. So we had to fill in the missing bits and then she kind of went in with watercolors to, to match all the colors. And so it's, it's not something we do to try and fool anybody. It's just something to make the book more aesthetically pleasing. Uh, but value wise, it's hard to say. I would say, Uh, anywhere from say 150,000 to 250 to (laughs) half a million, perhaps. Uh, you're not going to just
1: run down to the corner store and get one of these things. You're not, yeah. (laughs) A million
2: (laughs) dollars, yeah. Just the for instance, the just the fold out illustration, the woodcut fold out of Jerusalem, which is probably one of the most famous woodcuts ever made, is about a five. Five foot illustration uh, oh, was wow. recently sold by itself for over thirty thousand dollars. Just that one illustration. Wow. So, um, yeah, it, it's a, it was a really a joy to work on, and, and it was and it was great because you know a lot of people ask, are aren't you scared to work on these things? They're so old, and you know because you know this thing has this book has uh, you know it's it's seen the uh, uh, Henry the Eighth. It's seen all of these these kingdoms come and go and uh and all this time happening but yet they were so well made in the first place the pages were made of cotton and they just people just kind of freaked out when they saw that we were actually immersing these pages into distilled water and giving them a bath and uh, and, and then you know there's a certain process involved in that but you know you take them out and you hang them up like like you're doing your laundry and and they're, they're just as good as new and and strong enough to to make a few repairs and take the sewing and, and the rebinding and but you can't do that to a 75 or 80 year old book they just wouldn't re, they wouldn't survive but five 600 year old books yeah not a problem it's crazy
0: so,
1: yeah so and crazy.
2: so we yeah we we specialize you know are the 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 books i really love are the books from the 1600s uh but we we get quite a few of those and a lot from the 1500s um but then i've been i, tell people, I mean, you know, I'm very fortunate because I've I've been able to work with a group of clients that really have just some awesome collections, and uh, and so it's 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 almost uh, kind of giddy once in a while because we get to actually hold these books that a lot of people would only be able, at best be able to see behind glass, and we get to hold them and open them up and kind of stick our noses down in them and smell, you know, the the centuries of, of use and. Um, and there, there's a there's a lot of charm in that for us. So yeah.
1: So I'm going that's, to guess you know, know what you're thinking. talking about here then.
2: <laughs> well, you know. Yeah. Well. Uh, and I, I could tell you a, a weird little side story as to why I'm even interested in this topic. Please uh, do. Uh, this it's actually started right in my earliest bookbinding days before I even went off to study binding. Uh, I was finishing up college and I was just, I'd just finished up my undergraduate and I was starting a, you know, my, my idea was I was going to become a, a long haired academic and teach Anglo-Saxon and Beowulf and all this kind of stuff. And, and that was what I was going to do. And about halfway through my, my master's degree, uh, was, we were, tra- I was working in, I was getting a, a, la- a master's in Latin and, uh, and we we're, were translating Jerome's Vulgate. And I just kind of, and at the time for the, like the last two years before that I had been sort of just as a hobby teaching myself book binding. I was always kind of interested in it. And, and about halfway through this master's and about halfway through the semester of translating Jerome's Vulgate, I just said, you know, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I, I realize I'm actually more inter- interested in working with the old books. And, and, and so I, it was right about that time where I, uh, you know, anyway, sent a letter off and got started in bookbinding and with my tutor and in, in England. And, but anyway, it was, it was before I went there though, that, that I lived uh, at the time, I lived in kind of an old neighborhood of, of Lincoln here. And, uh, there was a, a a great little neighborhood grocery store and I was in there one night and, as I was wandering around, I was, got my stuff and I came up to the register and there was a, I, I can't say exactly, but I'm pretty sure it was uh, uh, the National Enquirer there at the register. And I looked at the front of it and they had the picture of a book on there. And the headline was, and I'm not going to necessarily quote it, but you'll get the idea. The headline was, book covered in human skin is growing hair. And <laughs> I thought, well. I've never bought a National Enquirer, but I am tonight. And so <laughs> I bought that book. <laughs> I bought that that magazine. I took it home and I read it. And it was just a, a huge headline, but a small article in the thing. And, and it was actually uh, the, we'll talk about that actual book that is referencing uh, uh, a little bit later uh, when we talk about some of the examples, but, but that's what, you know here i was studying binding on my own as a hobby and i'm like oh my god the national Inquirer is talking about book binding and and that that moment i was always intrigued i'd never even conceived of the possibility that a book could be bound in human skin and that just triggered an interest and and i've just been a casual learner of the topic ever since and then very casual i mean i've uh, and I'm not even well, you, sure there's you even you can only that do so much, much <laughs> to know, right? Yeah, there's not a lot to know. I mean, well, hopefully, hopefully we can fill the whole show with with good information. But uh, so far, so good. Okay, well, well, we'll, we'll let's keep start off path, with so. um,
1: let's start off with of what what is the practice of binding human books, and what's it called? Is it any okay. different
2: than regular binding books, or oh uh, yeah, well yeah, it's uh, it does have a name. Uh, anthropodermic bibliopagy, uh, it's a, it's a great, uh, great phrase. And I've always liked that from the beginning, uh, anthropodermic bibliopogy and it, it comes from the Greek, uh, anthropos, which means, uh, like man or human, you know, anthropology, that sort of thing. And then, uh, then, of course, anthropodermic, derma, we go, of course, like dermatology and stuff. It's, of course, referring to skin. Uh, so you're talking about human skin, and then you have bibliopagy. Uh, uh, biblion is is Greek for book, and uh, the, that sort of suffix uh, comes from the, the, the Greek pegia which means to fasten or to kind of combine, uh, which is a ridiculous way when they could have just said, Bookbinding, but they—I think what happened was that they had a very specific situation where, because the the term was not used right away when they I started would think discovering, that with a name these, like that, <laughs> yeah, it came that came later definitely, and I think it was just a, a a nice way to describe what could have been a probably was considered a very morbid practice, and so they said we're not going to call it human skin book binding let's call it anthropodermic bibliopagy and it won't necessarily sound so bad that way and uh but because the main thing is anthropodermic that word has never been used for anything else except in relation to the word bibliopagy and so and bibliopagy has almost never been used in any sense except when attached to the word anthropodermic and so it's the two words were almost basically created to as a as a term for this for this practice, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's yeah it, it sounds it, it's but it's still humans you know book binding in in human skin or human leather. So
1: when did it start? Or when? Well, I don't. I I know they don't have an exact date as to when it started. They have an idea of when it possibly could have started. Is that mm-hmm. right?
2: yeah there are there are different instances i mean it, it's uh the the trouble is that there are some books i mean there are books dating back to the 1600s that have had human uh that have had human leather put on them but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were original that that they were done in the 1600s uh they know some of these books are, were bound at one time and then necessarily then probably rebound uh to in order to have that uh that human skin on it. But it really saw its first probably major use during the French Revolution. Uh, when I'm shocked by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well it's and, and this is probably one of the one of the main uses of uh anthropodermic uh books is you know they after the French Revolution, when they created the French Constitution to sort of shove it down the throats of the royalists they said not only are we going to present you with the the brand new french constitution which eliminates the monarchy we're also going to bind copies of it in the skin of your royalist loyalists Whoa, and that's yeah, awesome. And, yeah that is and there so was
1: awesome.
2: <laughs> and i can't think of the the town right now but there was even supposedly and i'm not going to say it's 100% true but the the rumor was that there was even a tannery in outside of paris that basically existed for the purpose of tanning human skin and and it would have made sense that they were probably doing it and probably had plenty of skins to process because of course a lot of them were at that point headless Um, (laughs) uh, and so they were able to you know probably do a lot with it and that's part of the problem is that we don't you know there are so many books out there that we know that certain ones exist, but we don't, certainly don't know, we haven't accounted for all of them in any beginning sense of it. Right. But it really, anthropodermic binding really became popular in the 19th century. And, and by popular, I not necessarily mean like something they celebrated, but it was something that was done probably the most often in the 19th century. Uh, and I think this has a a bit of a attachment to that, that Victorian era of let's, you know, let's celebrate the oddities of the world. You know, we're 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 wealthy, very sophisticated people, and we're going to surround ourselves with very strange, sometimes morbid things. And, uh, you know, and, and I, uh, and you, from just, I imagine from other topics you may have had on your podcast, you probably have experienced that a lot. The 19th century really held a lot of, uh, uh, milestones, so to speak, for the strange for the curious for the morbid mm. because it was in a way celebrated and uh, but it's uh, but you know you're looking at like I mentioned before when you when you're coming to say incanobula the fourteen fifty five to fifteen hundred period, even though printing presses were rare, they produced a million books in that time period it's and crazy yeah and and most of them were bound in vellum or leather, and vellum just another form of leather, a far more durable form mm-hmm. and i can't imagine that some point, even one out of those million may not have was probably done in human skin. And it's possible there were not, but you know when you just if you roll the dice enough times you 're going to probably realize that yeah, there probably was one, and i can't imagine that even uh the, the manuscripts the the more ancient manuscripts i'm sure there there would have been a time where this could have happened uh but usually the books that we have that have been tested they have those books have somehow been marked in a way usually an inscription in the front of it or something that says this is bound in human skin and so that doesn't necessarily mean that all the books bound in human skin have that inscription on it. Uh, but that's, that's you know, the ones that we tend to have a, been able to work with. But I'm sure there are plenty of them out there that have those inscriptions that have never been even noticed. You know, most many, many books in libraries, I think people don't realize that, you know, if you go to large, large, especially public libraries, there are, you know, the books on those shelves may not move in 50 or 60, 70 years, you know, other than just shifting down the shelf a little bit. Uh, you know, and so it's possible that you know they just they just haven't been noticed yet.
1: So I got to ask, yeah. why would people want to do this? Is there what point did somebody say, hey, it'd be a pretty good idea to take that guy's back skin off it and bind it up into a pocketbook?
2: <laughs> you know what? Yeah, it's, uh, why. Right. Usually, almost uh, of the books that they've been able to test and and that that they know. I've been able to verify is human skin. Uh, generally, it, it kind of falls into two categories. One is punishment uh, for a crime, uh, and the and this kind of falls into this idea. Especially if you uh, if you look look at law and justice, especially in England, they were very. Easy to jump on the execution uh, parade, so to speak. Uh, you know, we had a, a book, a legal book, in uh, from late 1600s in the bindery about a year ago, and it is nothing but court cases uh, of of people uh, and it, it basic, uh, just a synopsis, and then and then there's an index of all of them in the back and what they were tried for and what the punishment was. And you would be absolutely shocked at how many of them resulted in execution and how few of them were actually caused by what we would today call capital crimes. Uh, and probably some of the most commonly executed people in England were printers and bookbinders. Uh, especially in the 1600s, because they were printing and binding what they would have considered salacious material or material books that would have been against uh, the crown or against the the, the state in some way. And it wasn't enough that they would just give you some lashes. Uh, they would execute you for that purpose. And it was, it, it was shocking to me as a bookbinder to see so many of my own tradesmen so to speak even though it's 400 years ago to see that that was their fate for doing stuff that I'm doing every day and uh, but anyway what was common then especially if you create committed a very heinous crime and, and this goes back as as far as like Oliver Cromwell not only would you be executed your dead body would be executed and sometimes two or three times and, well, they're thorough, and, if anything. <laughs> they are very thorough. Yes, they want to make sure, and they and and so what they would often do is that one of the reasons is that they would have uh, the criminal; you'd be tried, you'd be uh, sentenced, and executed, and then the court documents uh, or uh, stories or the written accounts of the crime and the court. Would actually be bound in the skin of the person who committed the crime, and uh, the the main thing people kind of forget about and have to realize is that you know if we we think today, oh my gosh, that, that how would that ever happen? How how could how could you know uh, the, the the state or how could some, you know just extract that skin? You know that they're still a person. They even though they committed murder, they're still a person. But a lot of people don't realize is that even in the 1800s in England, it was illegal to bury the body of, say, a, a convicted murderer. You could, Your body could not be buried below ground. And so, but that the body then had to basically disappear on its own in the form of rotting in public, in in public display, and this again in the 1800s, I'm not talking 1400s, in the 1800s this was still common or the body by law, the first off, the body had to be uh, dissected medically uh, uh, sort of an autopsy, but more of a a thorough dissection and that would help them not have to bury the body because they would go through the dissection and they are basically trying to figure out is this is is this person who murdered this person are they the same inside as we are or is this person who who committed this crime out of very obvious mental health issues are they uh you know are they different inside so let's do these examinations and find out and granted we gained a lot of uh, medical research and knowledge from it you know and this is smacks of mary shelley and frankenstein and all of that but right. uh, uh, but the result the result is that People back then, the idea of consent didn't exist. You didn't necessarily need consent to decide what was done with the body. And so, whereas that's very different today, even a a, a an ex the body of an executed criminal still has, in a sense, rights and still has familial rights. And, but back then, absolutely not. There was no consent needed. The, they would do with it what they wanted to. And then the doctors who committed, the, these were the doctors that were doing most of this. The doctors who did the dissection, and oftentimes these dissections were done in lecture halls publicly. They would do the dissection and then take the body away. And then all of a sudden, a big patch of skin somehow just disappears. And, uh, and then they're just disposed of the body. But nobody cared. There was no watchdog out there to say hey now let's examine this body now that the dissection done let's make sure that nothing foul was done to it and uh, they did not they just cast it aside or they good knows God knows what they would have done with the body back then you know I'm sure there are people that were giving them money for the bodies for whatever purpose um, the, and, but so those doctors often would uh, and this was one of the second reasons why people do this is uh, the, uh, doctors w- would take uh, their medical notes and combine them with the stories of their patients or the criminals and then w- extract the skin and bind those notes or those records in the skin of, of their, their own patient. And uh, um, so it's usually usually as a sense of, okay, we're going to punish you again because we're going to take the – we're going to make sure that, that your name, as long as it exists in history – is going to be noted as being a name associated with crime. And to really drive the point home, we're gonna bind it in your own skin. Uh, And then we're gonna write on the inside of that book that this is what happened to you and this is your skin on this book. And, uh, or again, just out of medical curiosity, but one of the other, probably other reasons people did it was for collectability uh, which was again, especially in that Victorian sort of period was that, uh, was this idea of just having something really strange. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention a a book coming up that, that the idea behind it is that, uh, and I think you have knowledge of it because you, you, you briefly mentioned, described it, uh, that the book was probably just made just to have sort of a Good luck charm, so to speak. Uh, not
1: if you're the guy whose skin it was made out yeah, of, not, right? Yeah, but, but, but exactly. But,
2: but why do we keep rabbit's foots? So it's not good yeah, for a rabbit. Right. Yeah, it's terrible for the rabbit. But it does, you know, and that's kind of how how we do this. So, you know, if we if we can, you know, if you can catch a leprechaun and do whatever you want to it and and, and – and you, whatever you take from it is good for you, not the leprechaun or good for the right. rabbit or, or good for that. So it's so in a weird way, that's probably one of the other reasons it's done sort of to have your own sort of talisman uh, uh, to help bring you good luck. So so the
1: process of doing this. Mm-hmm. Is it any different than working with any other kind of leather? Is there special things that have to be done with working with human skin? Because it's, it's different. Is it the same as regular leather? Well,
2: everything that I've been able to, to read about that, and basically is yes and no. It's, it's not the same as any other leather, if you want to compare it apples to apples. The main leathers that are used in bookbinding primarily are calf. Uh, by far, and then uh, and these are generally ranked uh, in order of availability, and so these leathers will change according to what part of the world you're in. Uh, calf, pig, sheep, goat; those are the usual ones because we have plentiful supplies of those. Uh, that always has been, still is today. Uh, you'll find goat obviously much more common in uh, the Middle East and Mediterranean areas calf, far more common in in the Americas and, uh, you know, Western Europe, that sort of thing. So, so it's hard to compare human skin to that, mainly because what's happened to human skin is that our skin has become thin over the evolutionary period because we have learned to stay out of the harmful effects of nature. So, our skin over time has just thinned because we have built, um, you know, houses. Well, we've knitted sweaters and these type of things to keep us warm. So we don't need the real thick hides that uh, a lot of these animals have. And so each skin, depending on the animal, is very unique to that animal. So, so if I'm working with calf, it's very dramatically different than working with sheep for instance, or working is because sheep, for instance, likes to, is very spongy and, and you can split sheep apart practically by hand. Uh, I mean, if you've ever used a chamois to dry your car, mm-hmm. um, that's the backside of a sheepskin. You use the chamois. I use the, the, the top side to, to cover books. And, and so, but, but sheep splits very naturally because of t- uh, it's, ability to create lanolin and become more waterproof but human skin because it's so thin can actually work as a good book binding leather it still has to be tanned uh and you can't just you know and this is i think part of the thing that people misunderstand you're not just taking a patch of skin off of a cadaver and putting it on a book, uh, that won't work. Uh, the skin will rot; it'll be it'll decay just like any other skin. All all skins have to be processed. I mean, they're probably. You know, I'm going to speak to my experience, but generally, the leather that you're using in bookbinding is going to be processed. It's going to be uh, what's called tanned, and so human skin has to go through that same process. And of course, not. I've never worked with that, uh, but. From what I understand, there's really, you have to be a little more careful with it because it is quite thin. But as a bookbinder, I have to thin the leather down anyway. And so, you know, there are certain parts of the leather you want pretty thin. Others you need to, to keep decent uh, thickness. Uh, but no, it, it it tans well. It's uh, depending on uh, the, the, the in a sense, the age of the skin. And this is true for any animal. Uh the younger it is, the smoother it is. Uh, the older the skin becomes, the more wrinkly it becomes. Uh, and uh, not like wrinkled like necessarily, you know, crow's feet and that sort of thing. But just the, the fine texture and the grain of the skin becomes a little more pronounced over time. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, it's as long as you go through the process of, of preparing the skin, it would work as well as any other leather.
0: All right. Here, here's a question, a, yep. just out of curiosity.
1: You've you've used numerous um, hides to bind <clears throat> books with. What's your yeah. what do you find your favorite um, material to use? Like, is mm-hmm. it as far as like durability as opposed to like quality?
2: The the probably the most durable leather that you can use is goat uh, goat is naturally strong uh, it provides a little bit of uh, the needed stretchiness you don't want real stretchy leather it's hard to work with if it's super stretchy like like i don't like lamb skin because it's real stretchy some people mm-hmm. like it but i just don't like it. it's too stretchy to use but goat has, has a nice grain to it and depending on where the goat comes from Uh, The grain can be very pronounced. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, more sort of crackly. Other times it looks like pebbles, they call pebble grain leather, uh, or Moroccan leather. Uh, There's Nigerian leather. Uh, And so depending on where the leather, the the goat lived, will determine the sort of the look and feel of it. But most fine bindings, if you're looking at, you know, if you look at the uh, the decorative high dollar, the $10,000 bindings that are highly with lots of gold and, uh, you know, ju- jewels and all that kind of stuff, almost always those are done in goat. Just because it's such a high quality leather, pol- polishes beautifully. The gold takes to it very nicely. Uh, but uh, as far as, durability, or not just durability, but as far as ease of use, a a really nice calf skin is probably the best. Uh, And for us, it's probably the most used because of the period of books that we're working with, Uh, you know, especially those 16th, 17th century uh, Western European bindings. Uh, Calf was the the leather of choice. Um, And, uh, but the other one, that I like to use, I do like to use sheep, but we only use it, tend to use it just on small books uh, because sheep, by the time you split sheep, becomes very thin, probably even thinner than what human skin would be. And so you have to be a little aware of the fact that you know if your leather is too thin, just the proper usage of a book is going to wear it out over time. It'll look beautiful for you know, 10, 15, even 50 years. But over time, that super thin leather will just crack and it won't serve its purpose anymore. So when we use, when we do use sheep, we make sure it's not too thin but it's still, it, and it does it goes on beautifully. You can't complain about it. Uh, but if you look at human skin as far as if you want to compare it to one of these uh, sheep looks just like human skin if it's younger uh and less sort of uh abused uh by the, by the elements pig looks almost exactly like human now we have a I was not too, when I was discussing doing this podcast with some other people uh and I was kind of explaining to How did that know, conversation go over by the way <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely I have to be very cautious. And and I've had this conversation with people all the time. And, you know, the first thing is that people will always do is that they will say, oh, my God, is that something the Nazis did? And to the best of my investigating, and I don't necessarily mean to be a professional in that regard, but I have never known of any book bound in human skin as a result of what the Nazis were doing. I'm not saying they weren't using human skin for whatever, but. It, it was far more done by the British and the Americans probably than anybody else in the world. And so it's, it, you kind of want to turn the tide on, on, turn it on them and say, no, it's really, we're the ones that were doing this. Uh, and, but it, it, it never goes over real smoothly. The conversation, you kind of instantly say it, the, the people kind of get this kind of almost like they want to take a step back You know, like they're not sure they want to be quite as close to you. It's like, I'm going to keep my distance. I'm not sure what your (laughs) intentions are by having this conversation with me. But uh, that's great. uh, You look good as my book. (laughs) That's right. As I'm wringing my fingers out, (laughs) (laughs) you would be my best Mr. Burns impersonation. That's awesome. uh, I mean, if any, if any cartoon character had books bound in human skin, it would have been Mr. Burns. Definitely Mr. Burns. Yeah. yeah. um, Made of orphans. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But, but, uh, but yeah. uh, So, and in a lot of the books that have been associated with human bindings, they've been able to to find out that no, they actually were either sheep or pig. So every once in a while, they might try and pull off calf, but calf is the calf skin has almost no grain. It's like almost perfectly smooth, and it's it's it would be hard to to pull that off. So have you actually held any of these books yet? Have you actually
1: had one in your hand, no. and seen one?
2: Okay, so you've never actually held one. Okay. No. No, nope. uh, I've only seen one when I was in England studying behind glass. And, um, but at the time, even though it was of interest to me, it wasn't something I, because, you know, when I was there, I was I was 20, 25 years old. And, and when you're in the middle of the British museum and, or the library, I can't remember which one it was at, but it was, there's just too much to see. And you kind of see this and there's so many other people around and, and it was like, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty, you know, pretty cool, pretty weird. And then you just kind of move on. But, but no, I, I still would love to, I'd, I'd love to be able to, to look and feel it. And I have a feeling that if I were to, to hold one, I have a feeling it would just, it would feel like any other leather book, you know, in fact, I'm sure plenty of people out there have been holding books bound in human skin and don't even know it. Yeah, and, right? and they that wouldn't no know way. it's just, yeah, it's, it's only if they see it. Inscription in there would do. All of a sudden, they they kind of flip out about it, and, and it's like, well, you you know, you probably have, especially in you know old libraries, and uh, you know, chances are it's there. But uh, so, I, no, I I, I haven't. Um, but you know, sometimes I'd like to. There are some, you know, most of the ones that are going to be out there are not obviously available for handling. Uh, They're only on display at certain times. And, uh, you know, I might be able to convince them as a, as a professional to have some access to it, uh, to actually be able to hold it. But even then it's, it's, it it might be a shot in the dark. So. So let's talk about
1: some of the books that we know are out there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know what? First, I'm going to ask you one thing that the article that you read about the human book growing hair, was that a legitimate story or that was
2: it, was it real? Well, s- sort of, yes. Obviously, what I was able to read from it uh, and, and from another actual article that th- the article in the Enquirer was taken from another article. And of course. They put their slant on it. Uh, the other article that was written about it was that, that of course, the book was not growing hair. Uh, you know, hair growth, as I was as able to understand, basically stops at death. Yep. Uh, what people re- think is hair growth is actually the skin shrinking. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand about that particular book is that, that the book, the leather was, the skin was not properly tanned. Uh, either not in the right way or not long enough to remove all of the hair. And that's one of the main steps in in tanning leathers. You got to remove the hair. And so what they think probably happened was that the skin was basically shaved. Uh, and then the, uh, over time, the leather just shrank back a little bit, revealing what was left of the hair under the skin, which basically was a sense of stubble uh and so the 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 actual article that was written about it made no mention of it growing hair (laughs) it just talked about the more scientific approach of what was happening and why there appeared to be hair still in the book and it's not like it was you know i'm i'm a bit of a bear of a man and it's not like me with a five o'clock shadow, it probably would have been just very slight Your amounts of air here and there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I know it didn't come out that way this morning, but. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, it, it definitely had a bit of, uh, dramatic, uh, license to the, to the article. So, so what books are out there? The, what are the main ones? Or some of them? Well, uh, yeah, there's probably the most, um, the one that I was telling you about, uh, that first one, is uh, uh, was a ledger that was uh, from Bristol, England, and it was a there was, at that time in like eighteen twenties. there's a eighteen year old young man. Um, uh, let me I gotta look at my oh, John Horwood. He was obsessed with this woman, a uh, young woman, and would not relent whenever she was not she did not show interest in him. So he eventually very gruesomely murdered her, uh, from what the, the actual, the sort of trial, uh, transcripts say they basically bashed her head in with a very large rock. Um, and so he was tried and, uh, eventually executed, um, uh, and then this was this and this was probably one of the most, most famous of the books, mainly because I think it was really one of the f- first ones that uh, really became spotlighted. Uh, but uh, same similar situation, a Dr. Smith, who was dissecting the body, uh, removed a portion of the skin and bound this sort of ledger style binding uh, uh, and in it were the the core documents and the, the the different records of. The, the boy's murder case itself. And so uh, when it was, and it was actually tested and, and uh, proven to be a- actual skin. And it's, uh, has spent some time on display in, in the British Museum and other times uh, on display uh, back in Bristol. Um, so that's, I said, that's the, the one that ar- originally got my interest going. Um, but uh, probably uh, the most, well-known, uh, is, comes from, uh, actually in Philadelphia. Uh, there is a collection of books in the, uh, medical library, uh, the College of Physicians, uh, medical library in Philadelphia, uh, of the, uh, this doctor, uh, John Hugh, who, uh spent his entire life as a physician and amassed at the time a, a pretty substantial medical library. And he donated these these books. And I believe it's the, the John Hugh uh, collection there at the library, still there. Uh, and they eventually discovered uh, three of the books that uh, that he had bound. And it was, he had a patient, uh, her name was Mary Lynch, and she died in 1869 of a pretty horrific uh, parasite infection, um, uh, and they said. And he detailed the uh, after she had passed away. Detailed the the, the parasites had basically almost consumed the body practically from the inside out. Uh, she had eaten some bad pig meat, as I said, uh, and which was somewhat common at that time. Uh, and she was quite poor, was not able to afford anything. And, she, and, and this doctor worked at a, what would have been the idea of a, the, the general hospital, so to speak, uh, the hospital for the average Joe. Uh, which in in a sense was really the poor people's hospital. And so she was there, admitted, and and she was quite young too. I mean, it was sad, Um, but she was admitted and treated and eventually died. And then the uh, doctor uh, at the time of the autopsy removed, even though when she died, she was only about 60 pounds. uh, And probably a good chunk of that was sadly just bones and parasites and uh so a but he did remove from her thigh a certain amount of skin and and this is all he actually accounted he he recorded all this. this isn't conjecture he in his later days wrote all this down and he said he took the skin and tanned it himself in chamber pots and um wait wait, wait. And the stole, ones that are used for human waste use urine? Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah and so that's the other thing that i didn't kind of get into was uh it's always good to say for this story is that there are basically two ways of well there's lots of ways of tanning leather the more modern way is uh using tannins from trees it's a yeah. you first use soak it in lye did you hear right? Then you soak it in this tannin solution. It's, it produces much about the same way as making red wine. Why red wine has tannins because it's in the barrels that they're, they, they uh, brew in. And mm-hmm. so, but the other way back then was what they call poor man's tanning, which is to soak it in urine. See, uh, oh, and, I had a yeah. leather
1: hat that was cured in urine that I had gotten. Sure. It was terrible.
2: No, well, I imagine. Oh. I can't. I've never, I've never experienced urine tanned leather, and I hope I never do. Oh, uh, dude,
1: I hope you never do either. It <laughs>
2: stinks so bad. Yeah, I can't imagine because in that, what what happens in the tanning process is that you, you have to tan leather because you have to, and we'll get back to the story, but we have to remove the moisture out of the collagen of the skin, mm-hmm. and that's a long process. It's a long process. Now it's a, it was a long process then and so uh well they've had they've they have newer ways of doing it now but you know you don't want to talk about it because it's so detrimental to the environment uh but they still do it all over the world um but uh but once you remove the moisture out of the collagen you then have to replace that with the tannins uh, which will preserve the leather and so and that's why and so urine uh, will do the same thing and they, they call it poor man's tanning because well practically anybody with a container can do it uh, uh, so to speak and and it's um, that's often how in the wild west so to speak is how a lot of trappers and stuff would if they were do, working with leather uh, because that's, that's the materials they had and if you're sort of a rugged outdoorsman and uh, you want to live out there on your own but, but you want to make you know make a some drum top or something you still need to process that leather and that's probably what you're going to do uh you know it, it's you know we're all going to piss eventually and we might as well do it in a pot and make some uh good <laughs> use of the skin while you're at it so uh but that's what uh doctor the doctor would do is he was he uh tanned it in the uh in the urine uh, which they said obviously he would have had ample amounts of working at a hospital. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, nothing about this is uh, gross at all. <laughs> no, nothing. no. Nothing. <laughs> well, what gets what's really to me most odd about this is that he didn't do anything with that leather for 20 years. He kept. Years. He kept that tanned, urine tanned leather for 20 years. And I, I'm guessing that somewhere in that time period, I, I'm pretty sure he knew that he was going to use it for a very specific thing. And he, what he used it one was to bind his uh, three books that sort of were... The, the binding was inspired by Mary Lynch. And I know it's her because he gave enough hints in his notes that the, the the college there was actually the medical college and the hospital was actually able to track down exactly who he would have been. He gave her their her initials and what she died of and all this stuff. And they were actually able through the records to find out who it was. And uh, But I'm guessing that in these 20 years that he had to have learned bookbinding in some way which in Philadelphia there were bookbinders. You couldn't throw a rock without in the book binder back then and so uh, uh so he would have learned at least enough to be able to do this and so he bound uh three books in uh mary lynch's skin uh he did what was called a what we call a quarter binding so as i mentioned before she was very slight had was only 60 some pounds so there, there could not have been much usable skin there and so uh in a quarter binding uh, is a type of binding. We've all seen them. It's where you have just one particular material on the spine of the book yeah, and yeah, the yeah. boards are covered with something else, usually marbled paper or some sort of thing like that. And so it's a way of getting the uh, the usefulness of a leather binding, uh, but not having to spend as much time and resources on using the leather because you're only using a small amount of leather. So, this small bit of leather that he would have taken from her, uh, her corpse uh, would have been enough to do the cord of the spines on three of these books. And he chose the books pretty carefully because the, the three books all dealt with basically female health, uh, contraception, and uh, uh, childbirth. And so... I think, wow. basically, he was basically kind of waiting, building up his collection, because he was very young also at the, when he started. I mean, he was, I think, 23 when he did this autopsy, if I remember right, some b- very young 20s. Uh, and then over his lifetime, he eventually, 20 years later, uh, found those books and then kept them in his library until his passing. Uh, How do you say that all became for a rainy part of day. the collection? Like, how do you... Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> how do you... Where do you keep it? How do you, you know, surely your wife or... You know, yeah. I mean, there had to have been... You know, I'm sure... Well, I I don't even know that, but I mean, he had to have... He had to have been the only one that knew this other than perhaps a a, a colleague or someone who <laughs> may have helped him in it, but... Um, That's so... But yeah, the these are... Woman, those are...
1: <laughs> that poor woman <laughs> yeah. goes to the hospital with trichinosis... Yep. suffers through the parasites yep. dies yep. and then is turned into books 20 years, years later, after yeah. her death
2: yeah yeah and those those three books constitute as far as they know to this point the largest collection of anthropodermic uh, anthropodermic uh, books in any place right now so wow. they're so any any other place that has them he has one here, one there, maybe two but so three is the greatest number uh wow. that they that they know of that they're able to to uh actually locate um but uh uh so there's you know again uh one of the other more curious examples, and just warn me when we're running out of time well, getting, here yeah we're, getting, yeah we're getting we're getting close okay. <laughs> One of the, to me, one of the most curious examples, and this really harkens to me of, of you know, young Frankenstein almost, is that um, in the early 1800s there was a guy named William Burke who was uh, executed for murdering oh, people. Oh, broken here. Yeah, exactly. And it, he is accused of mur- murdering people and giving their bodies to science for of course we're not giving them to selling this bodies of science for dissection. But what he was actually hired to do was to go dig up corpses and provide them. But he, that was too much work. It was easier for him and another guy to go out and just kill people. And so they made probably a decent living at doing that and eventually was caught. Um, and so, uh, then eventually, and I think this is the, 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 one you were probably reading about because you mentioned a pocketbook. Uh, uh, his skin was used to, uh, to make, it was to, to make a pocketbook. It was not even a book. It's just a, like a little thing you'd keep your money in, uh, or keep some notes, a little notebook or something as just a little portfolio thing that you would hold in, not very big at all. Uh, and so when I talked about earlier that how people would do this sort of almost as a, as a, as a good luck charm, that was probably the more specific example of it because there's 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 no purpose to it i mean it's not protecting a book it doesn't there's no pages or no great story inside that it's you know directly connected to it's just a a pocket book you know it's you keep your money in it. but for the whoever did that well for the person who eventually owned it probably the doctor that did it that was to him probably a very cherished uh, possession, and for him, he probably draw, drew a, a, a great pride in, in having it. Uh, again, this idea that well, th- this guy, I've we've we've sort of defeated the death of you know this guy, all the horrible things he did. We've sort of won out because now we have his skin and it's being put to to some good use. So, See, that's uh, the and that's. that's the- Yes. And that's, that's called, that's actually on display in Edinburgh and from uh, at a museum in Edinburgh. So, or the, the Royal College Library, I think in Edinburgh. So, um, but you know, the, the, I think the main thing to, to realize is that there really are not many of these, uh, you know, very, very, that very, very few. Yeah. <laughs> we know of exactly. Uh, and, and so it's, we have to, Know that obviously it was it was rare enough but yet significant enough that people actually coined a phrase to call it uh something uh but the there's no real practicality to it. It would be a harder process to do all of that a much more involved process than to just use leather that was being has been produced for easily for a thousand years and been readily available. So for every one that's done there's a reason. <laughs> uh and so but again there there I'm sure we, are, we I'm sure there's we know understand that there are many more and it wouldn't surprise me if there are uh, you know long dead dictators who, you know, uh, or you know, uh, tribal kings or whatever who may have done similar type of things just as a way of uh, gaining pride and and power of defeating your enemy and using their skin for some purpose, you know, uh, as a reminder of of their defeat. And so I I, I I have a feeling someday that eventually they're going to find more, but it's you have to to find more, you have to be looking for it. And I, I just don't think It's something that people are actively looking for. It's just going to be something that every once in a while, another one's going to show up here or there. So I got to ask
1: you the last questions of the night. Well, um, sure. This is definitely not still being done today by companies and it's not legal, right? Or is it legal to do this? If if somebody can
2: sense and donate (laughs) skin or that, that is the next area where, I got looks that I when I would ask
1: <laughs> well, we appreciate your sacrifice or, sir or
2: I, I yeah or I would I would get a change of the, uh, of the tone of voice that I realize okay I'm not going to keep pursuing this because I don't understand what I'm asking about uh, you, you know, it's this instant sense that you know, oh my gosh, I'm going to be put on a list now because I've asked this particular person about this. And you own a company that does uh, these kinds of things. <laughs> exactly. Oddly <laughs> enough, I am a bookbinder. And uh, yeah, uh, my now my first inclination is is to say basically say, no, it is not legal. My God, how could it be? Why would anybody even do this? Uh, but the more I've looked into it and the more, which again, I'm not a professional uh, investigator, but the more I've looked into it, there is a gray area, and well, there is the a company idea, again, that preserves
1: tattoos. Sense. There's a company out there that, when and, you pass away, you can have your tattoos preserved, and your loved ones can preserve those. So,
2: exactly. And someone, uh, I was uh, a, a friend of mine who is, uh, uh, a, a friend that is uh, uh, a writer a embalmer has, he said people have come to him asking if, they could re, if he could remove tattoos, and, and he just doesn't do it. But in the process, that made me curious. And so I, did, I think I have came across a similar idea. And so, so I think what it really comes down to, first off, one of the questions that came up in, this, in the discussion that I was reading online was that there's a problem that has to be really defined is who owns a body when it dies, Um, this idea of consent, but who who becomes the owner of it? And uh, so I think the gray area, probably where it's most able to be done is if the person gives consent of their own body to say, I'm going to donate this amount of my skin for specifically for this purpose and probably would have to give details that 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 I'm going to have it processed by this tanner i'm going to have it bound by this bookbinder and but so i think in that if that happened now again i would love someone to come up and, and and tell me i'm wrong i would i just haven't been able to find the answer exactly but my understanding because of the idea that you can remove tattoos and and preserve them and give them to the family and i'm thinking well what's the difference why why yeah, why would, be I, why could i not take heart. that tattoo that skin and bind it into a book and so um i guess to me that that there has to be some legality in it and i, I can honestly tell you it is something that i would say it's on my bucket list That's my
1: next question um, if somebody said would you do this for for me would you do it
2: i yeah, now it gets weird. Probably, I, <laughs> I, no, 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 not at all. Uh, I, I would probably. I think I definitely would. I would have no problem with it. Now, here's the thing that would have to happen. One, for the sake of the business, um, it would have to be a very personal thing, uh, as far as between me and that customer. And and but the work I do for my customers is very personal. You know, I, you know, I, I never. Say who's who owns these books and all that kind of thing. I'll describe what the book is, but you know the relationship I have with my customer is very, uh, you know, is very honored thing for me. And so, if someone were to come to me and and if I would definitely know that it was legal, then and I had the right to the ability to do it, then then I would do it, of course. And uh, uh, but I've always kind of told people that someday I want to do a human skin binding, but chances are it'll be the last book I ever do. It'll be the last binding I ever make. And because not only because it's that sense of, wow, I've really done it all now as a book binder, but at least in the way the world is right now, if I were to bind a book in human skin and that word got out, it would be... It, 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 an incredible, not always positive attention getter, but I would love for the ability when I am sort of old and weary and I've got one more book in me to do, I would love to be able to do it. And, you know, I've, I've been binding books for 25 years and I've done bound thousands of books and we have had thousands, tens of thousands of books come through the shop. And I know another 25 years, there will be thousands and thousands and tens of thousands more that move through the shop and and go on to customers. And the funny thing is that probably out of those tens of thousands of books, I could count on my hand, maybe 10 books that really have a deep, significant story to them. Other than just being a neat old book. I mean, that you know, even the old Incanobula that we've started the discussion with, that's an uh, neat old book, but it doesn't necessarily have a true amazing story. But the thing I know about this, if the last book I bind as a book binder before I, I can't do it anymore. If that book is bound in human skin, I will guarantee you that that book will have a story to it and it will have a purpose and it will have a reason to be done. Um, and I, almost every book that's been bound in human skin and there is a story behind it and and that to me is the beauty of it it's not it's not the morbidity it's not this uh, puritanical freakish reaction that people have to the idea of binding something to human skin it's, it's like okay get past that look at the story look at what the binding is. And that's why I'm a bookbinder. I'm not a bookbinder to make bindings. I'm a bookbinder to protect the written word that's inside the book. That is my my, uh, sort of station in life. I'm I'm there to create a protection for the author's words because that's what we're celebrating. And we're celebrating those words and the lives that are inside the book. And so, when we look at these criminals and we look at these patients and we look at all these situations where these people have lost their lives, to me, there's a certain beauty in it and a certain respect that comes with the fact that, my God, not only are these words immortalizing this person, whether they deserve it or not, but their their actual skin is going to be there for centuries and centuries to help protect it and, and to, to, to give it a, a sense of endurance. And to me as a bookbinder, that's why I do what I do. And, and I hope, again, that if, if I have that opportunity, I'll guarantee you it's going to be a great book. It's going to be an awesome story behind it. And so, yeah, if, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, that sounds fascinating. I got, I got one question for you. Sure. Um, what is the most exotic hide you've used and how difficult is it?
2: Uh, the most exotic hide by far was Elephant.
1: Really?
2: Uh, you had elephant hide. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, elephant is a beautiful leather. And 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 I'll, I'll, uh, I had, and this is, again, part of the process. I I knew the gentleman who brought me the elephant skin. Mm-hmm. And he, and I, I I feel like I almost have to say this because I always have to say this when I explain this. He is as good a person as I've known. He was a great, he's a great guy and because i love you know uh, I, I hate this idea of big game hunts and that kind of things but i know that the process he used for he had the the whole he hunted the elephant it was completely done. And I was specific with him at the time I was doing it. And I said, was this, did you get this legally? And and he assured me that this was a legal hunt and uh, everything was done properly and respectfully and stuff. And, and so, and I knew him, I know him. And, and, uh, and so I was able, I've done actually two, he's had two books bound uh, in elephant and it was just a Real joy to work with, you know. I I thought that this would be the most impossible thing to work with in the world, but the the outside of the the elephant skin had such a sandpapery feel, and and it was like, man, nothing's going to get through this. But yet, when I got flipped the skin over and started paring it to thin it down, it just paired beautifully, and I and it was it just went on the book in such a great way and we, and we didn't put any stamping on it. We didn't adorn it with the title of the book or there's no gold or nothing like that. And I like that. And I like that he requested that because he said the skin speaks for itself. And, and I loved it because it was just like, this is a book bound in elephant skin and nothing else. And, and it was, there's, again, we didn't even have to waste, ruin it with, with gold even would have just taken away from it um but i've done uh uh stingray which is a common skin uh Mm -hmm. uh uh, i've done reindeer i've done you know a a lot of and there's some some animals just don't work well you know i've done a lot of deer deer is not the best uh uh, leather for binding so but yeah by far elephant it was a joy to work with so it's cool yeah well
1: kevin um We've already hit up on the hour mark, so this is a chance where I give okay. you uh, if you want to promote your site or for people can get in touch with you or they can find what you do or whatever. Uh, go ahead and put all that out there.
2: Yeah, sure. I, again, or Signature Bindery. Uh, welcome to probably the best place is either through Facebook uh, or uh, Instagram, just under Signature Bindery. A signature like your name uh, and then uh, but we do have a website uh, which is signaturebindery.com pretty straightforward uh, I'm not the best at keeping it updated but you get a little bit of information especially good for contact information so uh, but if you go to Instagram you can see a lot of the photos of the bindings that we do um, and same with the Facebook page but Instagram is probably more of examples of the bindings and the tools and stuff that we use so
1: awesome well, thank you very much for doing this, sir. This is this is exactly what we wanted. Uh just weird yeah, this enough is great. um factual, <laughs> you know, it was really cool. It was it was nice to have you on here. We had the hardest time. We've been wanting to get this show out of the way for years, and we just could literally years. Yeah, literally years, <laughs> and we could just never find anybody that we were able to get on here to talk about this subject. So uh well, you were well, a godsend.
2: I'm glad I could help. Thank you very well, much. Thank man. you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care, man. Thank you.
3: Thanks. Strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. That's what Arthur Machen said. I'm Andrew Gable, and I've always been a fan of history, the unexplained, and true crime stories. Here on Forgotten Darkness, I'll dig through old newspapers and written sources to unearth some of those stories which have been lost to time, but should be heard. So, if you're a fan of any of the above, check it out. You can find the podcast on most any podcatcher, on iTunes, or at ForgottenDarkness.podbean.com. I'm always keeping an eye out for new stories, so let me know if you find a lesser-known tale for me to look into.
1: We all have questions. What happens after we die? Oh, in this Bigfoot. Is Bigfoot real? government hiding aliens from us? We all have stories. I grew up in a haunted the UFO house. The went right over the mountain. Join experienced paranormal investigators JP Doyle. They need to make this where there's a
2: hole on the top for your penis.
1: John Gonzalez.
2: It's the same, same, but my ass is brown.
1: And Roman Avia.
2: Got <laughs> some underage pictures of me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> While we talk all things paranormal. With just a pinch of humor, find our show, The Just Paranormal Podcast, on all major podcast outlets, and be sure to
3: subscribe to stay up to date on all of our latest episodes.
1: So that was Kevin Oliver. That was a really fun show to do. We had been trying to put that show together for a long time, and trying to find somebody out there that is knowledgeable about books, different kinds of leather, and has an interest in talking about books bound in human flesh is a very difficult thing to pull off. So anyways, yeah, um, probably within the next couple of weeks or so, I have shows back in the feed again. I might throw a couple of more Best of episodes up there or another Best of episode up there until we get things uh, rolling on this end again. I'm in the process of booking guests. I'm in the process of reading books. All of the fun stuff that goes along with producing a podcast. I am also part of another podcast now called Old Nerds Drinking. You can find it on Podbean for whatever reason. Um iTunes is being weird and not letting us post the show on there for some reason or other. I think it's because they're understaffed or COVID or what have you or whatnot. That show is basically a geek-oriented show, very nerdy. We pretty much bitch about Star Wars, Star Trek, anything nerd-related and alcohol-related. It is not my show. I am the co-host of it. My buddy John runs the show. I just kind of show up and try to derail things or what have you. So if you're into those topics and you want to hear me make an ass of myself, which a lot of you people seem to like, go check out the Old Nerds Drinking Podcast and go find us on Facebook. Anyways, take care. Talk to you guys again soon. This is Rogan. Peace out from Detroit.